Last-minute invite to an undisclosed location. So wrote Enrique Tarrio last December on the right-wing social media site Parler as he posted photos from the steps of Donald Trump's White House. Tarrio, a convicted felon, is the leader of the Proud Boys, a far-right group that, as USA Today put it earlier this year, had turned into a de facto army of fighters who traversed the country getting into brawls, setting fire to Black Lives Matter banners, and attacking Antifa protesters. The group, and a similar one called the Oath Keepers, are now central to the investigations into the events of January 6th. More than 30 Proud Boys have been indicted by the Justice Department for the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And just this week, a federal judge overseeing many of those cases upheld the department's position that the defendants can be charged with obstruction of an official proceeding, meaning they can be sentenced to lengthy prison terms of up to 20 years. But even as the criminal exposure of the Proud Boys intensifies, Washington, D.C. Attorney General Carl Rossine is taking another route. He's filed a civil lawsuit against the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and their leaders over the events of January 6th, calling the assault, quote, a coordinated act of domestic terrorism. We'll talk to Racine about his lawsuit and the broader issues raised by groups like the Proud Boys on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, the more you look at the court proceedings unfolding and the January 6th committee proceedings unfolding, the more critical the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are to unpacking the events of what happened that day. You know, we know from multiple filings by federal prosecutors that the Oath Keepers had gone there with military-style combat trainings. They armed themselves with tactical gear, in some cases bear spray, before entering the building. They were stashing guns in a hotel nearby in Virginia. They were planning for mayhem that day. And the question is, what were the communications among them? And, you know, what were their communications with those in Donald Trump's orbit before the riot and the mob took place? Yeah, I think as a legal matter, you know, lawyers are much more comfortable going in a case like this, going after organizations as opposed to individuals, because, you know, you can look at All of these issues of planning and premeditation and coordination and conspiracy, which gives them something to kind of sink their teeth in, but also would bring much more serious charges um, if they were able to actually convict people. And then the question that you raise, communications, coordination between these organizations and the Trump administration is the $64,000 question, which, you know, I don't know how much closer they are to actually, you know, being able to prove that. But uh, that's certainly what they're going for. So look, hundreds of thousands of people don't just show up in Washington without coordination and communication and a plan. And it's pretty clear that that's exactly what happened on January 6th and that it was uh, many a week in the making. The real question is, 
not just whether or not they were coordinated to show up and engage in a First Amendment protected rally, but whether or not the coordination and the knowledge of their intent went beyond that. And, the you know, I would say that the evidence and the walls are quite rapidly closing in. Right. And what was the motivation to be there on January 6th? It was to stop the certification of the election. So it wasn't sort of just, hey, let's just pick January 6th. It's a nice day to have a a rally. There was a specific purpose that people had in mind. And that gets us to, I think, another issue which Liz Cheney raised last week, which is a specific crime that they could go after people for, including the Trump administration and potentially Trump himself, which is corruptly trying to obstruct an official proceeding. That proceeding would have been the certification of the election. Let me just add that the evidence is also mounting that many of the people who they were reaching out to affirmatively to attend on January 6th were members of groups known to have violent tendencies. And you don't just ask a bunch of violent people to attend a nonviolent First Amendment protected rally. So I think that's a a pretty damning piece of evidence. But yeah. Just back on the uh, on the Liz Cheney point that uh, Danny was raising. I mean, it's the same it's the same statute that Judge Meta this week in the uh, Proud Boys case uh, cited and upheld the department's position that you know the Justice Department is indicting these Proud Boys for obstructing the official proceeding. You know, that's the statute in question. What Liz Cheney is raising and the January 6th committee is raising is can that be extended, you know, more broadly to people in Trump's orbit? And that gets to a question, you know, an issue we've discussed many times on this podcast about, you know, you had two events that day, the rally, First Amendment protected activity, and the mob and the riot, clearly violence, criminal behavior. Was there a plan by people who were organizing the former to conduct violence and mayhem in the latter assault on the Capitol? And clearly the Proud Boys are so central to that is because we know they were bringing guns. They know they were they were going there with military style gear and dress and attire. And they seem to sort of, you know, cl- they were planning on violence and mayhem. You know, the question, still an open one, is whether we're going to find communications with those in Trump world that can bring them into the um, the basis for criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Well, yeah. And, and the other question about the, specifically what Liz Cheney was raising, I mean, this is what she said in that January 6th committee hearing. She said, she asked the question, did Donald Trump through action or inaction corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes. And I think I don't think inaction gets you there. Well, that's what I I was going to say. I'll defer to Victoria, the lawyer on this, but I think that's a tough case. Right, right. I mean, you know, I think think clearly if they can show that Trump played some kind of a role in this effort to direct role in this effort to impede an official proceeding of of Congress, he would have um, criminal exposure there. But just the fact that he was watching TV 
and enjoying kind of it. enjoying it as this thing <laughs> right. was happening, yeah. I'm not sure that's going to get you there. There isn't a provision in the U.S. criminal code that they can go after him for, for just being an asshole, you know? Well, I, I, I mean, if, if only, um, you know, but <laughs> yeah. um, I think I will add that you could, and this is a, a, a certainly a novel issue and a novel argument, but you could argue that the president of the United States is, is a person who whose action or inaction has to be judged kind of singularly and distinctly. And because in contrast to every other, you know, kind of, not in contrast to every other, but in contrast to many others, the president does take an oath to faithfully defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. And if his inaction, his failure to respond That's to exactly the That's exactly what, what Liz Cheney said. She said he has a constitutional duty. Yeah. You know what the inaction is? It's an impeachable offense. <laughs> and, and Let's impeach him a third that, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clearly an impeachable offense. The question at this point, though, because we went through that and, I, you, know, you know, Jamie Raskin and company made a powerful case that ultimately didn't prevail. On the other hand, you know, what if these January, you know, when, when the National Archives, if they ever turn over uh, all of these documents, you know, what if they're there is, you know, some evidence of communication between Meadows and Trump. And Meadows says, Mr. President, you have to stop this. People are going to get killed. This is illegal. And Trump says explicitly, no, let it go on, you know? Yeah. So we don't know what evidence ultimately there is. Uh, and maybe it'll turn out that there'll be something more explicit that he did rather than, than I guess, implicit. And so that's what the committee is uh, well. The closest going we for. were going to get to that was McCarthy's phone call with Trump, which you know, surprisingly, we've heard relatively little about that lately. But it seems to me, you know, when McCarthy was calling him that day, you know, supposedly, according to the congresswoman from Washington who he later spoke to, he being McCarthy, was pleading with Trump to do something, and Trump replies, "What? Well, it seems like you care about." that more than you the theft of the election or whatever that that would go to what you're talking about but i'm i'm a little surprised we have not heard more from the committee on that point maybe they just don't want a republican congresswoman from washington i think herrera butler that's who mccarthy spoke to and she took notes and that was going to be at the very end of the impeachment trial you she know, was going to be the witness she, she was yeah. going to be a witness right but you know maybe the committee is a little you know gun shy about going after mccarthy in particular given that he's likely to be the next speaker of the house but um that's a separate question one kind of sleeping evidence gathering activity that the committee is undertaking right now is, as you you may recall, that they have uh, subpoenaed phone records from most of the major carriers. And so what they're doing right now is they're attempting to kind of create a phone log of all of the calls that may have been made amongst all of the key players in the January 6th riot or, you know, a, you know attack on the Capitol right now. So once they get that from Verizon, you may begin to see an interesting kind of spider web of calls that were going on. And that may be exactly the sort of evidentiary lead that the committee needs to begin kind of unraveling some of the calls and conversations that were going on. And and we should point out that the committee is planning live televised public hearings after the new year, which they have not done so far, except for the very powerful a testimony of those three police officers uh, quite a while back now. So 
that will be interesting to see how much they're able to actually put out there in public. And fascinatingly, one of those three police officers just recently resigned from the police force to become a commentator on CNN. So I think we can can expect him to be um, live and commenting during some of those hearings. And we should point out that uh, this is, as of now, going to be our last episode of Skullduggery in 2021. But we will be back the first week uh, of January, in which we, too, will be commemorating the events of January 6th. In somber and solemnly commemorating. (laughs) Absolutely. But before we do that and uh, bid you farewell and happy holiday, we have our uh, guest, the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., Carl Racine, on hand. So let's get to it. We are now joined by the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, Carl Racine. Attorney General, welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be with you, Michael. So you filed a major lawsuit this week against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for their involvement in the events of January 6th. Now, there obviously is a very aggressive criminal investigation going on into the events of um, January 6th. Why do we need a civil lawsuit against some of the same people the Justice Department and the FBI are investigating? I think it's an excellent question. And let me tell you why. And first, you're correct. So my office filed the first lawsuit by a government entity, first civil lawsuit by a government entity against the January 6th insurrectionist who caused extensive damage to the District of Columbia, our freedom as a country, and particularly the brave men and women of the Metropolitan Police Department. Those officers, including the three who subsequently committed suicide, defended the Capitol, the peaceful transfer of power, and prevented further loss of life and injury. The reason why we filed the lawsuit, a complementary lawsuit to the criminal investigation is because history teaches us that hate groups react when the government, and now that's the district government, comes after them both with criminal sanctions as well as civil sanctions. And the reason makes sense. When you hit criminals in their purses and wallets, that matters a lot. They tend to run and scatter because money, just like freedom, matters a lot to criminals. That's why we brought suit. Just to follow up on that last point that you just made, you're trying to really hurt them where it it counts, which is the pocketbook. And if they don't have uh, funds, if they don't have money, then, then it makes it hard to operate and they disperse, as you put it. What precedents did you look at for a case like this? Are there, were there other cases that you, civil suits that you looked at where a government agency went after an organization to try to essentially take it down in this way? It's a brilliant question. And the answer is yes. If you look candidly at you know the history of uh, hate and hate organizations in our country you of course can go you know back almost from the founding of our country but if you go to the Ku Klux Klan you'll see that honestly regular old-fashioned law enforcement really didn't work 
And oftentimes, sadly, law enforcement was complicit or acquiesced to the conduct. It wasn't until the federal government started bringing in criminal and civil injunctions like the Ku Klux Klan Act, right, to make sure that after the uh, the passage of the 13th Amendment, that the South and those who would continue slavery followed the law. And that's when the Ku Klux Klan Act, of course, was passed to ensure that the new rules of engagement in Reconstruction were adhered to. Now we know that Reconstruction, unfortunately, was a failed promise that the federal government sadly got out of the game. We also know that in the next time period of immense hate group gathering, and I would say strike that as post-Vietnam, that there was a concerted effort on the part of the Carter administration the most underrated president of the United States. And, you know, look here, he he wasn't perfect. We all know that. Who is? But sure enough, there were legal actions filed against these hate groups. And what did they do? They went underground. I have to tell you that Reagan also continued that. Give him credit. Again, a flawed president, in my view, just as Carter was. And then they scattered, they ran, They didn't stop hating. They didn't stop organizing, but their efforts were made more difficult and more challenging. Sadly, the federal government has not been vigilant in regards to snuffing out these hate groups using all tactics. What we're trying to do and what private plaintiffs are trying to do, including in Charlottesville, is doing what what you just asked, hitting them where it counts in addition to trying to take away their liberty because accountability matters. So the idea of using the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was uh, enacted during the Ulysses Grant administration, what prompted you to want to turn back to a 19th century law to do this? And you know, what advantages does it give you as, as the plaintiff in this Sure. Case? Well, we look back, and thank you for that history, uh, Michael. And I don't think you nor I went to school with Ulysses Grant. (laughs) (laughs) But I read the recent Ron Chernow biography, by the way, which is very good. I agree with you. I'm listening to it. At any rate, the reason for the Ku Klux Klan Act was to ensure that participants and residents and citizens and groups in the United States actually followed federal law. Because all too often, they viewed federal law as being you know, something that was discretionary as to their values. Sorry, that's not the way our you know, federal and state federalist system works. So we look back at all the tools. And I've got to tell you, you know, it's not as if we were the most creative or the brightest lawyers. There's nothing new under the sun, as they say. What we did is we looked at other prior strategies, including you know, the great work that was done in Charlottesville, although, of course, you know, they didn't prevail on that particular count. We thought that the Ku Klux Klan Act laid up perfectly with our facts and circumstances that we as a sovereign, the District of Columbia, could make out the elements of that offense. And, the, and when we do, that there would be financial penalties. That's why we filed there are multiple investigations into these groups now. You, you've got the Justice Department, uh, which has uh, uh, brought you know many criminal indictments against members of these organizations. You've got the January 6th committee, which uh, has uh, spent a lot of effort uh, investigating 
these groups. You've got individual uh, lawsuits uh, by members of Congress, and then now your lawsuit that the District of Columbia is bringing. Are these investigations coordinated in any way? I mean, are you going to be sharing information? It would seem to me that to be as, you know, to be successful and and that there may be information that these other investigations are turning up that would be useful to you and vice versa. Uh, So to answer the question, well, first of all, you're right. There are a lot of, um, well, there are a number of investigations led, of course, by the Department of Justice's criminal investigation, which I think the last count, nearly um, 600 or so people have been, have pled guilty, Okay. And that obviously is quite important. I hope they continue. It's also fair to say that there's been a fair amount of public criticism around the nature of the financial penalties that have ensued because a lot of the pleas have been to trespassing. Look, we know that these were not tourists who were trespassing. These were not, you know, people who stayed, you know, overstayed their welcome. These were people who brought a wooden gallows. That's an execution machine to the grounds of the Capitol. And so What we want to do is hurt them more than a $500 fine. And as to coordination, I think it's really appropriate for everyone to follow their own lane and make sure that they're not inappropriately sharing information. Of course, grand jury information is protected by Rule 6E. And so, no, we're not accessing that kind of information. You know, I played basketball and college basketball. I was okay, not great. The worst part after a game was the film session because the coaches would always say the camera doesn't lie, nor does it blink. A lot of the evidence with respect to January 6th is on video, not only from the events on January 6th, but also on proud and boastful activity, both pre and after on social media. So we've got oodles of evidence and we can run in our lane and prove our respective cases. I'm just speaking for the District of Columbia, of course. I should point out when you're talking about, you know, the light sentences that some of these people have gotten, but not all. In fact, uh, as we tape just today on Friday, one of your defendants, Robert Palmer, was just sentenced to five years in prison for his role in January 6th by a federal judge here in Washington, D.C. So that's an indication that when there's hard evidence that these rioters actually, this is a guy who actually attacked the police officers, when they engage in that kind of conduct, they are getting tough sentences. I think you're right, Michael, but I would add a twist to that. I think the, again, excellent journalism, as well as the clearly speaking out that's occurred on the part of the public and federal judges, I think that they have had an impact. And I trust our attorney general, Attorney General Garland, but I also know that the Department of Justice is filled with human beings. And the public is not happy when there's no accountability, nor restitution, nor recompense, nor justice. And so I do believe that you're going to start seeing sterner sentences just as the judges rebelled against the sentencing guidelines and were the leaders along with the advocates and saying, this is outrageous to, to punish people who are drug abusers to 30 years in jail. That eventually led to the abolition of the mandatory sentencing guidelines. I think the judges here deserve a lot of credit for leading what I think is going to be to stronger and harder punishment. 
Let's talk for a minute about the the damages here. I mean, in, in some sense, this is a classic civil lawsuit, right? I mean, you're you're going for compensatory damages, uh, punitive damages. Uh, you know, there are various torts here, you know, emotional distress, whatever else. Walk us through what the damages are and what you're looking for in terms of, you know, both punitive and compensatory damages. So so the easy damages, of course, you know, relates to the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. And, you know, the best we can find right now, and I think there's probably going to be more evidence developed in the course of discovery, is that approximately 850 Metropolitan Police Department officers went to the Capitol to try to repel uh, the attack on our freedom. As we know- 850 Washington, D.C. That's correct. There's fewer than 4,000 Metropolitan Police Department officers in the District of Columbia. In our complaint, we allege, and we think we've got facts for this, that at least 850 D.C. police officers, not a state, should be a state because we fought for our freedom and for other reasons, went there to repel the attack. Look at the video. What you'll see are M Metropolitan Police Department jackets, okay? Take a look at that. All over that video, getting pummeled by flagpoles, getting shot by taser guns and shotguns. Michael Fanone, a 20-year officer of the Metropolitan Police Department himself, in 2016, a Trump voter, right, had a heart attack a concussion. And guess what happened well, to him when he was dragged down the stairs? A mob was yelling, shoot him with his own gun. And what did Officer Fanon say? I have kids. I have kids. So yes, there's a lot of damage there. And I want to go back to the three officers who committed suicide after the events of January 6th, and I'm just going to ask the rhetorical question. What is the value of a life? So no, we're going to prove up damages in a way um, where we're just going to ask, if it's a jury, ask the jury to go ahead and keep writing zeros down. After the third zero, put a comma, and then begin again, more zeros. Because what happened, honestly, can't be quantified. Obvious question, the organizations you are suing here, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, what assets do they have? What makes you think they could, you know, pay damages in the multiple zeros? Well, it's really interesting that well-organized, well-formed, with excellent counsel organizations regularly, you know, sort of organize themselves in ways that limit their liability, hide their assets, and just in case they get hit hard, it's not a death knell to you know, the founders, if you will. So here's what we're going to do. It'd be great if we put them out of financial business. But there's a process, as you two well know, called discovery. And we have curious lawyers at the Office of Attorney General in the District of Columbia. We're bayoued by the uh, Anti-Defamation League, unbelievable organization. We are also supported by an organization called States United, our pro bono counsel, and two great law firms, Deckert and Paul Weiss. We're going to propound discovery questions. And Michael, you're, you're, you're a guy who likes to follow the money. Um, we're <laughs> yeah. going to follow the money. Let's see who funded the thousands of people who came to the Capitol to take away our freedom. Is it your premise that everybody who came to the Capitol- No. 
that day was intending to attack police officers and commit violence. No, that's why we named two organizations and 30 plus individuals as organizers, co-conspirators, planners and participants. Were there more than 30 plus in those two organizations? Yes. Could we add additional defendants? Yes. Will we? Probably. Was everyone who supported the former president um, an insurrectionist? I'm happy to tell you, thank God, no. You know, um, when you mentioned, I just want to go back to the three police officers uh, who committed suicide, because when we learned about those suicides uh, after the events of January 6th, of course, on the face of it, it seemed it seemed obvious uh, that there must have been a, a direct connection between what happened on that day and, and those officers taking their lives. But there was not, you know, any clear evidence um, in all three of those cases that had surfaced that would allow you to say that with certitude. Do you have new information, new evidence that those suicides were uh, directly related to uh, uh, to the at- attack on, on uh, the Capitol? So... And I have been defense counsel. It's an excellent question. And defense counsel will no doubt argue to the extent they show up that the trauma involved in policing has an impact even before January 6th. And so there'll be a causation issue. I believe that Michael Fanon's testimony on the Hill, brave testimony, where he talked about the need that he had to engage in deep therapy, that that need did not come to an end after two days, that it's a lifetime, is exactly what those three individuals also confronted. I can't speculate as to whether they availed themselves of the kinds of things that Officer Fanon did, but I have no doubt that when there is war, there's an impact, PTSD. There was war on January 6th. And those officers participated in a war that they were not trained for. Police don't go to war, but there they were in the midst of a war. Let me just take you back to, I asked you before whether everybody who went to the Capitol was, you know, participated in the assault on police officers. And you said no. I don't think so. Right. But the lawsuit says that your defendants here worked together to plot, publicize, recruit for, and finance their planned attack. In short, what you're alleging is that these groups did plan in advance for an attack on the Capitol. These Michael, people did. what I would yeah. say to you is that is right. correct. Look at the complaint. The complaint provides actual evidence, emails, text, a social media post about where to go, where to meet, who to be, what are you bringing, what are we going to do? Do you remember the f- military fatigues, the helmets, the backpacks, sure. the earplugs? I don't think they were listening to Apple Music. Yeah. Okay. They were moving in sync. And the reason why any responsible lawyer is only going to bring a case that he or she can prove, I'm quite confident that the two entities that we sued, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, 30 plus individuals, we've got the evidence. So 
The larger question that that some might ask about this uh, from the civil liberties perspective is, yes, when you go after individuals who committed crimes, who engaged in violence, whether you do it criminally or civilly, no question. But when you go after an organization, it could get a little more problematic because is the organization itself a criminal enterprise? And what are you going to say when their lawyers, inevitably as they will, will say, look, this is a political organization engaging in First Amendment protected activity, not the violence, but as an organization, they will say, that's not our goal to commit violence. It's to, you know, mobilize people uh, around certain political beliefs. How do you distinguish between shutting down the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers from people who might want to, years ago, shut down the Black Panthers, as was done, or today, Antifa, or other organizations as organizations? Yeah, so look here, I have to tell you the truth. I'm a card-carrying member of the ACLU. I believe in the First Amendment, and as Attorney General, we've been sued by the ACLU. And I've defended cases against them. I totally respect the assertion of First Amendment rights. And the last thing I ever want to do is go after a group for the conduct of individuals. And again, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, should they show up, they'll be able to invoke those arguments. I'm quite confident that what we've alleged relates to conduct that is illegal, conduct that resulted in our country's freedoms nearly being lost, and injury to the District of Columbia and injury and death to Metropolitan Police Department employees and officers. And again, guess what we're doing? We're doing what the Constitution says should occur. Hey, we're nonviolent. We're people that believe in civil process, things like a transfer of power. That's why we file this matter in court and the court will decide. Then let me say one other thing, because I want to make sure that I hit this point. Michael, I think you raised the question about judges now starting to sentence folks up to 60 months and, and this and that. I want to say something on that. If you look at, at the record, there are judges who have been concerned about the extent of sentences, and there are judges who have hit defendants hard. And those judges, thank God for our country, are both judges who were appointed by Democrat presidents and Republican presidents, including Donald Trump. Our country is special. The world respects our country, our constitution, our laws, and our norms. We're fighting for all of that. Your lawsuit goes on to say that the events that these groups instigated was a, quote, coordinated act of domestic terrorism. We don't have a domestic terrorism law in the United States, and these groups have not been labeled by the U.S. government as terrorist groups. Do we need a domestic terrorism law? You know what? That's the first question that my aunt, 86 years old, asked 
when she you know knew that I was working on that. And I told her what I'm going to tell you. I don't know. And I'm uncomfortable with the notion. But I do know this. 9-11 happened. Covert attack by a group of people who wanted to literally take away our freedoms. What was our response? A 20-year war, and I'm not going to say that everything, every penny spent was right and that we needed to go that long and American lives were well spent. I'm not going to say that. But 20 years and billions and billions of dollars. The question for tomorrow, whether we have a country or not, is how did the United States of America, how did the District of Columbia respond? We were putting our marker down and letting people know that we responded by defending our freedom and the District of Columbia, which, by the way, should be a state. Okay. Well, that is well, a on- that's a good note to end on. We're, but we're <laughs> yeah. both uh, longtime district residents, so uh, we can agree with you on the, on that point. Um, I will. The last thing I will say is that uh, I think maybe we need to get your aunt on Skullduggery. If we're looking for a, a co-host, <laughs> yes. uh, we will we will consider her because that's a good yes. question that she asked. <laughs> but you know what? She was actually earlier today making her hair nice, so she's game. <laughs> okay. We'll be back to you on that. Thank you. Really appreciate general. y'all. Thank yes. you.